Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy, which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. If you're a Spoonie or caregiver, you're already familiar with the importance of taking care of your mental health as part of a whole person approach to healing. But there are so many options out there, and many either feel impersonal or are inaccessible due to exclusionary pricing and long wait times. When you're living with complex conditions, you need to streamline your care as much as possible, too. And with Mood Health, you can do just that. With personally designed plans starting at just $45, appropriately vetted practitioners, and a concierge who takes you every step of the way, Mood is a simple, affordable, and convenient solution with therapy, psychiatry, and medication management all in one place. Mood's amazing clinicians actually care about you, and long-term relationships are prioritized over quick fixes. Go to moodhealth.com and use code INVISIBLE10 for $10 off your first session. You can thank me later. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Pooja Dene. Pooja is an entrepreneur, an actress, and she lives with obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, as many of you may know it. She's going to talk to us all about that. She's becoming more of an advocate in the space and has a lot to share about her experience. So Pooja, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you so much for um, for organizing this. I'm so honored to be here. Oh my gosh, it's my pleasure. It's so nice because <laughs> we actually connected through the lovely Nitika Chopra. So yes. it's so nice to be able to continue the conversations that we've all been having. Um, and really, like we're all strengthening our friendships doing this. So now I get to find out even more about you, which is exciting. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So let's start from the very beginning. I would love for you to tell us when and how you first got your diagnosis and how you've managed your health since the diagnosis. Okay. Well, um, I am actually about almost 20 years in, uh, into having this illness. I was diagnosed at the age of 13. I was in eighth grade. Mm. What I can remember was it actually started way before that. And I think many, many people with with illnesses, uh, find that, you know, it takes a couple years before you actually seek help and seek support. Yeah. So this was about 20 years ago. I was 13 years old. Um, I had been having symptoms for, I would say at least three or four years. So I can remember it dated back to at least the end of fifth grade. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I, you know, I was getting very depressed. I was just not feeling like myself. And I was also, getting a lot of obsessive thoughts. So OCD is an anxiety disorder. It is um, com- um, composed of obsessions um, and compulsions, right? So there's unwanted thoughts that come in your brain. And when you get these unwanted thoughts, the anxiety level increases and you feel very anxious and 
uh, out of, I guess, like you don't feel in control. And then, so you end up doing these compulsions to kind of like get rid of it. You know, for example, washing your hands or um, anything like that, you know, and they vary right from person to person. So I was finding myself spending a lot of time doing these compulsions and rituals and, you know, whether it was for a homework assignment or if it was taking long in the shower or, you know, and a part of me was just so confused because I didn't know what was going on, but I knew something was wrong. And my parents did as well. Um, I come from a South Asian background. So um, my parents were born and raised in India and, you know, came here. They uh, immigrated here over like 35 years ago. I was born and raised here. So as a South Asian, um, you know, this is, this is a, tough topic. And 20 years ago, it was, oh my God, it was, you know, I didn't even know where to begin. I didn't know what was going on. Mental illness was such a taboo. It was, there was a stigma around it, you know, not only in the South Asian culture, but everywhere. Like no one spoke about it in school. None of my friends talked about it. We weren't taught about it in, you know, in classes. Like it just, it was like, oh my God, if you have these thoughts, or if you're depressed, like you belong in a hospital or you belong at a, you know, a mental institute. And so it's images from the movies really that were right, which is really totally not not accurate. Um, But I was starting to, you know, have a lot of symptoms and that's when my parents realized that, you know, they really wanted to seek support. And so we went to our doctor, um, they referred a psychiatrist. And that is when I saw my first psychiatrist and I was diagnosed with OCD and depression. Mm. So it kind of all was interconnected. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and this is the interesting thing is that, you know, as you say, OCD is an anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. So like it's connected directly to anxiety and often connected to depression as well, which we know a lot of chronic illness diagnoses are connected to as well, let alone mental health and illness diagnoses. Right. Too. They're all interconnected. So interconnected. So it also sounds, it's interesting to me because it sounds like you were diagnosed really young, which is right. kind of more unusual, right? Especially, right. you know, as a child to be exhibiting enough symptoms that they're getting in the way of your quality of life. Um, enough so that your parents were noticing and that even you were noticing too in hindsight, right? So there seems to be a lot of self-awareness that certainly has developed since then. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. A lot. (laughs) So so you got the diagnosis when you were 13, right? Yes. So what does treatment look like for OCD? Because there are so many varying levels of severity, I imagine, that, you know, there are lots of different treatment options too. Absolutely. So I think the initial, you know, when I first went to the psychiatrist, a part of me was like really confused. A part of me didn't want to accept it. Um, I was like, well, I'm not sick or I'm not, I don't need medication. Like maybe this is just a phase, right? So I think the whole first couple of years was kind of like understanding what was going on in my mind and my body and, and, and accepting it. And also at that time I was, I was a teenager, right? So I'm also going through normal high school and having crushes and, you know, figuring out like, you know, what's going to happen with my next exam. And I, you know, I was like a really, really studious um, student. And so grades were really important to me. Type A personality, which is very, very OCD like, I I would say, you know, Mm -hmm. not to be biased, but like, that's how I've always been. Um, And so that was, I feel like all throughout high school was kind of like figuring out like, okay, finding how to balance schoolwork and treatment and, you know, and I, Honestly, I, I don't know, you know, I, I obviously, I managed, I, I survived and I, and I did, and I, I, I owe that all to my parents because, you know, if they hadn't taken that, that step 
right? And I know, you know, especially at that time, like seeking out support from a therapist and, a, and, a, and taking me to a psychiatrist was very hard for them because of, because of the taboo and the stigma, like they didn't know what this all looked like either. This was super new to them. And, you know, because they were, they believed in me and they believed in getting treatment and they, and they knew that was the right thing, right? They knew I needed to get better and, you know, whatever else, you know, what people would say and all that. And, and that was also a journey. Um, but, you know, therapy took a while. It took me a really long time to find the right therapist. And I feel like throughout high school, you know, that was, that was like the, the, the challenge was finding someone that I could talk to that understood what I was going through. You know, so I feel like the next, I guess, like eight years of my life going from eighth grade in high school all the way till graduation in college. So from 13 to 22, I, you know, I'm trying to remember the amount of therapists I, I saw and the counselors and the different medications that they put me on. And, you know, I kind of felt like I was in a little rat race, right? I was just like, I didn't know, you know, I was, I was just like trying the next thing until something stuck. Right. And that's yeah. what this entire illness is, you know, and all mental illnesses are kind of about, right. Until you find the right therapist, until you find the right match and you find someone that really understands your illness and understands you and, and they can help you. And also I think part of it is, was I ready to help myself? Right. I was always playing the victim. Yeah. So that was huge. And I don't think I was ready to help myself in high school and, and middle school because I, a part of me was like, kind of wanted to, you know, I, I didn't want to accept it, mm. you know? So it's, it's a balance of when you're ready to seek treatment and you're ready to accept treatment and finding the right therapist who is going to give you the tools necessary for you to like thrive and get better. Yeah. So I mean, I yeah, that's, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, it's really interesting. Cause that's also something where it's like, you know, at, at, that age, from that age of 13 to 22. I mean, these are prime development prime. years where not only were you obviously working hard at school, which is like an entire culture in and of itself, right? Yeah. Um, but you were also developing socially. And, you know, how do you broach these conversations with people about, okay, I'm living with this condition nice. or, you know, you know, are you hiding it? Are you sharing it? Like figuring out who you are is enough, let alone figuring out who you are with this diagnosis. Yeah. And, um, and I, I wouldn't say I'm ashamed of it. Um, I would say this was part of my journey. I actually kept it a secret. Um, and I think that made it harder, um, to be honest, like looking at it, looking back now, you know, um, the people that were closest to me, like obviously my parents knew and my doctors knew. And besides that, it was maybe a select few individuals that were, you know, my cousins or someone like really close to me that was, you know, with me day in and day out. Um, but I, I, I hit it. I was, I was nervous. I was, I was ashamed. I was scared of what my friends would think of me. Right. I was 13. I was 14. I was in high school. You know, we all wanted to look good and we all wanted to be, you know, the cool kid and we wanted to be accepted. And so this kind of threw a wrench in that, right. Because I was like, you know, what if they think I'm crazy? And what if they think I'm, you know, I'm not mentally stable and that I, you know, I might do something to harm myself or harm them. Right. And so there's all these thoughts running through my head. And so the easiest thing for me was don't say anything, right. you know? So my best friend didn't know mm -hmm. my closest friends. And I actually 
broke the news to my best friend, I would say it was probably like three years ago. So just to put that in perspective, my best friend I met when I was 10. Mm -hmm. So we met at the end of fifth grade. So she knows everything about me. And so to keep this from her and to keep this from like cousins and my family and people that were really close to me outside of my immediate family, you know, it, uh, it was really tough because I kind of had to justify, you know, why I was taking long in the bathroom or why I was taking long taking a shower or why am I redoing my homework assignment or, you know, why are things taking longer than usual or, you know, why am I doing certain rituals? So I think that battle, um, that took a, a while and, it, and until I got to the point where I was okay talking about it, um, you know, I think until then it was just kind of figuring out like how to get better and just how to get, get it out of my, my head and out of my system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it sounds like there's misunderstanding of the diagnosis as well as stigmas attached to it. And like the fear of both of those things sort of coming at you from either direction right. when, and if you do decide to share with people, I'm wondering as well, cause like, like you know, understand. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and it's, you mentioned like you went through a lot of different therapists before you found the right one. And you know, what about the role of advocacy in this journey to diagnosis and treatment and like, you know, the last 20 years, essentially, right. You're stepping up now as an advocate for others. That's something that you're starting to embrace. Yes. Your parents seem to have stepped up and acted as advocates for you pretty early on. Yes. So where did your healthcare providers fit in that as well? You know, like, was there any particular person that you turned to when you needed extra support? Do you, did you feel like you were sort of all at sea or did you turn to your parents and were they able to support you? What did that look like? Absolutely. Um, honestly, dealing with a mental illness is very lonely. It's if you're not sharing and if you're not talking, you like, I literally felt like it was me, like when I first got it, because I didn't know other kids that had it, or I didn't know what it looked like. Like I was like, oh, it must just be me then. Right. Like, it's just me and, and I'm, you know, the unfortunate one, or I am the one that, you know, has this illness and, you know, everyone else is normal, right. Everyone else is, is, doesn't have any issues they're dealing with. Um, so I think early on in my journey, my parents, my brother, I have a younger brother, um, they were kind of like my support system. You know, they were there for me when no one else was there for me. They, you know, my mom, I mean, like I am really blessed and I'm so honored like to have that support system because that's the only reason why I'm here today. Um, and I think when you're dealing with a mental illness, having support and having community is vital, you know, along with having the right doctors and the right, you know, treatment in place. Like it all comes together, right? It's not just having the doctor, but it's also having the support system and having the knowledge. So for me, my parents, my brother, they, they were, you know, they were there for me when I needed them. I also, um, you know, I met my husband in college and, you know, we're married, obviously we're married now, but we met when we were 18. So I was about like five years into this diagnosis and we, be, we were friends we became best friends. We started dating our senior year of college. So we were 21 and he knew me so well. And, you know, there was a point where we were dating and I was like, oh my God, am I going to tell him? Like, what, like, I can't keep this from him. You know, we were probably, I'd say like three or four months into our relationship and he, you know, like he, he noticed like some things, but like, again, it's very, I was, I, at that point I was an expert at hiding it. Right. Like I, 
I knew what I needed to do. I knew what, it, what excuses I needed to come up with. I need, I know I needed to say to, you know, for no one to know that I, this is what I was living with. But there came to a point where I was like, I just, I need, I want to tell him. And, and I, and I, and I, and I broke down and I told him and I was so honest and, and, um, and the love that I've received from him, the care, the, the advocacy, like I, I can't tell you, Lauren, like the, it, it was like, it was like he, it was like he just knew what to do. And it was just so important for me to know that, especially in a partner um, that I wanted to spend the rest of my life with um, because I, a part of me didn't want to tell him because I was like, oh my God, what if he, what if he rejects me? And what if he doesn't want to deal with this? Because dealing with a mental illness is not just me dealing with the mental illness, right? My parents have to deal with it. My brother had to deal with it. My husband has to deal with it. Anyone that's in my, my close circle, you know, that lives with me or that's around me day to day, like it affects them. Right. And, and that, and that goes to with any, anyone dealing with a chronic illness, not just mental, but physical, right. You need that support system. And if you're, if you're upset or if you need extra assistance and support that those are going to be the people that are going to give it to you. Right. And so it can be draining on them and it can be, it can be a lot. And he kind of just like welcomes me with open arms and just like so much love. And he actually found my therapist who I've been with for the past 10 years, which is so funny. And um, my therapist is actually Israeli and so is my husband. And it just like ended up working out. Like, it's just so funny. You know, he read about him in a paper and he was like an OCD specialist. And when I met him, I, my therapist, I was like, how did you find him? Like, he just knew and it just clicked and, you know, and the rest is history. And I still see him today and I, and I can't, and I would say that is the next advocate in my life, right? It's, it went from my parents and my brother to my husband to then my therapist. And so mm. now it's like a team. It's a team effort. Um, and yeah. I think a lot of my, the growth and, you know, the work that I've also put into this, a lot of that goes back to them too, right? Because if I didn't have them standing there next to me to pick me back up, you know, when I was crying or I was having that breakdown or I was in a really bad place. Like there were years where I was really, really low, you know, and if it wasn't for them, I can't say I would be here right now talking to you. You know, I, I don't know what this would look like. So yeah. um, I think advocacy is a huge part of it. And because I'm now at that point where I want to be an advocate for someone, right. I want to give back and help that 13 year old Pooja that, you know, is looking for a mentor, looking for someone to look up to, right? Like I didn't have someone that had OCD that, you know, that, that person that I could have been like, oh, well, you know, how did you deal with your symptoms and what did you do? Right. But if I can do that for someone else, like, you know, that would just be, that would just be such a win for me. Absolutely. It sounds like your admission of diagnosis and, you know, the support you've had from family and from your husband all along has actually strengthened those relationships. Yeah, it mm. has, you know, and I think, you know, now that we like look back at the journey, um, you know, during the journey, of course, like there were moments where I was at like rock bottom and there was a point where I went to McLean. So that is the OCD Institute in Boston and it was an inpatient program. And so that was like my rock bottom. Mm. I had gone there just, I think I was like 23 or 20 like it was 
I was still young, you know, I still, and that was like, that was the turning point for me, right? It was going there. I think I was there for like two and a half weeks or three weeks. And, and that was probably like the lowest point that I've ever been at. You know, I, you know, I'm looking back at, at it now, like there was a part of me that kind of shut it out of my life. I was like, I don't even want to remember that I was there, but part of me now is like, no, there was a reason why I was there. There was a reason I had to go through that in order to, you know, come to where I am now. Otherwise things would look mm -hmm. very different. Yeah. You mentioned also before we started the interview, ERP, which yes. seems to be a therapy that has helped you all along and is certainly helping you even to this day. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that looks like and what it means? Absolutely. So ERP is exposure response prevention. So when you have, an, um, when you have OCD, um, you get a lot of compulsions and obsessions. So OCD stands for obsessive compulsive disorder. So they're basically unwanted thoughts, right? That come in my brain. You know, it's like, oh, if you turn on the TV, um, something bad will happen. Or if you don't tidy up all of those, you know, bottles in the corner or things need to look a certain way or, you know, whatever this unwanted thought is, right? And There's, it's often connected to like a catastrophizing event. Exactly. Too, isn't it? It's like not like something oh, bad you know, will happen. It's not like, oh, it's going to rain. You know, like, I don't care if it rains. That's fine. Like, yeah. I'll still go on and do it. It's like, oh, your mom's going to die. Yeah. Or, oh, you know, you're going to get diabetes or your father is going to get into a car accident. It basically ties back to the people and things you care about and love the most. You know, it's like a yeah. vicious illness. It basically, it attacks your values and the things you care about the most. And because of that, it gives you these like unwanted thoughts. And, you know, immediately you become anxious, right? You're like, I don't want this thought. I don't want something bad to happen. And I don't want to be responsible for that. So then you engage in compulsions. So the compulsions will mostly be like redoing that, thing that you just did or washing your hands or saying a, you know, a, a verbal or mental um, ritual to kind of like mm -hmm. almost erase that thought that you had. Yeah. And so what I've been doing is ERP, which is exposure response, exposure response prevention. And so you basically expose yourself to these thoughts. So let's say you're scared of, you know, heights or you're scared of um, that you're going to do something bad by X, Y, and Z. So your therapist works with you in facing those fears and you actually do those things that you're the most scared of and that give you that anxiety. So for years, I was like, I don't want to do this. This just sounds really scary. Like yeah, there I'm are people give... listening right now, like no way. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm going to sit there and, you know, and do this to give myself anxiety and to like make me feel bad. Um, and, and that took a while, right? Like, and I know with my therapist, he was like, you know, there's certain ERPs and we did them like years ago and, and ERP can be with anything, right? It could be you're out of fear of heights or elevators or what you're basically exposing yourself, you know, day by day, you're going to go up one step and then two steps and you're going to go up that elevator or that escalator and you're going to face those fears and you're going to, the anxiety will increase. And then the longer that you're doing it, you'll find that the anxiety slowly decreases, right? Because you're exposing yourself to that fear. And then you're seeing that nothing mm -hmm. bad is happening, right? Well, it's reconnecting you're you to what's rational. Exactly. It, because so much of obsessive compulsive disorder is about us thinking that we actually have control over things that we have absolutely no that control over. we have absolutely over. no control over. It's yeah. such an irrational disorder. And it's like, but as someone with OCD, you're like, well, I, I can't take that chance. Like, I don't want to be responsible for something happening to my family or to me or the people I care and love about the most. Like, I, I'm not going to do that. Like, I'd rather wash not. my hands 10 times. Yeah. Or and I'd that rather... seems like a small sacrifice. Right. I'm like, it's a small sacrifice. I'm going to redo my bed, right? I'll fix my bed four times or I'll, 
I'll take off my shirt and put it back on, or I'll take extra long in the shower. I'll reread that message on my bottle or on my, you know, on my shampoo bottle. Like I'll, I'll reread it until it feels right. And that's the thing about OCD. You're like, until it feels right, but there is no feeling right because the minute you give into that thought or those, those compulsions, like it takes over, you know, and then you just go down a really bad spiral of when is it going to feel right? Right. It could take 10 minutes. It can take 20 minutes. It could take an hour. Um, but you're basically feeding into that OCD, right? You're making that mm. part of your brain stronger and being like, you know, you own me or you're, you know, and so again, it's a very, it's a very difficult illness to understand because it took me years to understand it. And it mm. took my husband years to understand it, you know? So, and I feel like it's very um, misrepresented in the media, in stories and TV and film and in society. You right. Know, I mean, this is something. Educate. Yeah. I mean, sorry to cut you up, but like, this is something oh. where we're also, we hear a lot on TV or in media. Oh, right. my OCD is right. like that. Everyone has something that they are both obsessive and compulsive about. Right. Um, and this is really irresponsible, isn't it? Because right. a lot very. of the time, yeah, very. So when people are saying this, when you hear it in a, a script or something, it's often in relation to something that's not at all OCD. It's just something that someone really enjoys doing or does a lot, but that's not at all the same kind of disorder that we're talking right. about. So there's a misuse of it colloquially that's conflating ideas, isn't it? It totally. And I, and I think that's why educating like our society is the most important thing we can do, right? As, as advocates, as, you know, um, people with these illnesses, like we need to educate our friends, our family, and the bigger thing is educating when, you know, when the kids are young, right? Like if I had learned about all the mental illnesses or, you know, the, the majority of the mental illnesses in elementary school or middle school, or if we were taught this, that like, this is, this is what it feels like. These are the triggers. If you see this, like seek help. That wasn't a part of the education system. And it's still not a part of the education system. I don't understand why. I mean, it needs to be a part of, of, of our education system. And I feel like if we just educate, right, the, the important part of this is knowing and understanding. And until we are educated about this, like, it's just going to be the same, right? Like, this you know, if, we, uh, if yeah. we teach the kids, like, okay, this is what OCD is like. This is what anxiety is like. This is what depression is like. This is what schizophrenia is like. This is what a mental illness looks like. You know, these are the things that you can do to help yourself, you know, seek help, meditate, do exercise, right? Engage in like healthy behavior, eat right, keep your mind healthy. Mm. But like, nobody taught me that. No, we didn't learn this in school. Like, and it, and also because of the stigma, nobody talk, talks about it. Sure. So that's like the biggest problem, right? Until we get to the point where we're like, this is normal. Then your, your mental health is just as important, if not more important than your physical health. Mm. We're going to be at the same place. Yeah. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Have you been in a, any position around this diagnosis? Because this is something that's entirely invisible. I mean, you don't walk around with a sign on your head that says I have OCD. Right. But have you ever been in a situation where you've been confronted and forced to validate or justify the existence of your diagnosis to people who just couldn't get their heads around it or, or didn't understand it because they couldn't see it? Yeah. Um, I have actually a good example of this. This happened to me when I graduated college and I had got my first advertising job in New York City, right? And I was so excited. Um, 
I think I was, yeah, it was, it was around that 23, 24 age range. And I was working for this advertising agency and I had really, really bad symptoms at that time. Right. You know, uh, like I said, this is, you know, OCD has flare ups just like any other illness, right? There are times where things are really bad. And then there are times where your symptoms are, you know, a lot more stabilized and that goes back to stress, right? It goes back to how much is on your plate. And for me, that's what it was, right? Am I like extra stressed out at work, you know, and the more anxiety and stress I had, the more, the more intense my symptoms became, became, right? You know, when I was in high school and I was taking honors classes and there was just like all that stress, I was like, I needed to get A's. I wanted to get A's. That's when the OCD triggered, right? That's when it, it, it it got worse. Um, you know, and when I started taking a seat back and I was like, okay, well, if I get a B, it's okay. It's not the end of the world. Or if I don't pass this test, like, when I gave myself a break and I was like, it doesn't all have to be perfect. The OCD kind of came in under control. Right. So when I was actually, sorry, going back to the advertising uh, story, when I was at the Mm, agency, this was like my first real job out of college, right? This is my first full-time gig. Um, I was nervous. I was commuting in from New Jersey every day. So I was taking the bus. Um, that was not fun at all. Right. Waking up at 6am, it was like high school all over again. Yeah, um, and I'm totally not a morning person. I, I don't, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm with totally you on that not. one too. What, I what is it about owl. like, yeah, I'm such a night owl too. And I think a lot of us are night owls who are also type A, which is because yeah. a lot of type A people think like, oh, morning person, you get up and you get stuff done. But a lot of us, we are actually better at night. I don't know why that I'm, is, but anecdotal. Right. It's so, it's so strange. And it's just, you know, like, High school was always tough for me, middle school, because like I had to be up at 6 a.m. or oh, earlier. It's so hard. And, I I mean, like, and this is a problem with I... the system, isn't yeah, it? I mean, I there have like... been studies that actually show that kids' brains aren't functional at that hour. They're not functional. Like our yeah. classes would start at 7.30 a.m. And I remember people were still half asleep. Like, yeah. like I wasn't alert, you know, like I don't even understand why school has to start that early, A. Yeah. Um, I, I just, and B, like, you know, so... I was waking up at 6 a.m. or earlier in New Jersey, and then I was taking the bus in to New York City. Mm-hmm. You know, I was taking it into Port Authority, and then I was taking the subway downtown because that's where um, my, my job was. And mm-hmm. so I was always like getting stuck in traffic, and I was, you know, I remember messaging my bosses like, hey, I'm running late. Um, and I feel like that's something that I've always been. Um, I've always been dealing with, right? Because with OCD, if you're taking extra time on certain things, you're just like always running behind. And so I remember, you know, there were instances where I needed extra time to do certain projects or certain, um, you know, like whether a deck was due for an advertising campaign or something was in and it just wasn't done. You know, I was dealing with a lot of my symptoms. I was, and, and I think it was just also like where I was in my life, right? I was so young. I was 23 years old. It was my first full-time job, um, out, you know, after college, after, you know, getting my degree and I was dealing with a mental illness that was only, you know, was only making it tougher for me. And so I remember having this conversation with, you know, with some of my, um, with some of the, you know, my higher ups and, and I was like, listen, I need a little bit more time or any, and then they didn't really, and, and it's not their fault. Again, it goes back to like, people just don't understand because if they don't deal with her, they don't have someone that, that is going through this. It's, it's hard to understand. It's like, oh, is she making this up? Is she like, is she just using this as an excuse? Like, you, because like, there's no visual signifier. Right? 
because there's no visual signifier. So right. it's not it's like, not like yeah. I have a broken arm and you can right. see I have a cast on my arm, right? I have a mental illness that's so invisible. Um, and just because I've been so good at hiding it doesn't mean that I don't need help and that right. I'm not struggling, right? Yeah. Just because I can put on a good act and I can be like, oh, you know, and I can perform or I can do certain things doesn't mean that I don't have bad days. And there's days where I need extra support or I need extra time or I just needed a break. And so that was, that, that was like one point where I remember I had to speak to HR and I had to like explain the situation. And then I had to get my therapist to write me a doctor's note, right? Cause they wanted that validation. Like, okay, well is, if you're seeing, if you're seeking treatment and I remember this and I feel like that was a point where I just felt like I wasn't understood. And I just felt like I was so forced to justify my illness. Like I was like, I felt like I was screaming inside, like, I have an illness. Like, what don't you understand? And it just, it was such a turnoff to me for corporate America. And honestly, and I, and I think that's why I never went back. Um, that was a job that I was actually fired from. So, you know, at that point, I was do we like, think that was a discrimination firing? Honestly, it probably was. Um, I don't know. Right. Like I, I was, I was probably there for like a year and a half almost, I remember. And so I had been there for a good amount of time, right? It wasn't like a month. I was there for a while, you know, and there may have been things that I could have done better. And there definitely were things they could have done better. Right. You know, and, and I just feel like maybe we didn't have the open conversation. There could have been discrimination from their end. Like, okay, well, she's not finishing her work on time or, you know, she's running late or, you know, so I understand as an employer, that's very frustrating. Um, I'm an employer myself now, right? I have my own business, so I get it. But I also understand that as an employer, it's your responsibility to also understand your employee's circumstances or to at least try, you know? Um, and so whatever it was, it was a great learning lesson. You know, I learned a lot from that job and, you know, I have no... I have no, nothing, you know, bad to say about it. Right. Because I was also at a different place, um, at 23, but I definitely feel like that was an instance where I really had to like stand up for myself and be like, I need extra help or extra time. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, and I, and I think after that, I was like, I'm not doing corporate again. Like, I'm just not doing it. This is not for me, you know, Every, and I, and I don't, I'm not saying just that company, but I feel like I, and I have a lot of friends that work for large companies and a lot of, you know, it's a very different world live working a corporate life, a corporate job yeah. where you are, you know, you're working for someone else. And, you know, wh when you're living with a mental illness, I feel like it's even harder because it's just easier to have that flexibility for yourself, right? Like you might want to not be up at seven, at 6 a.m. to rush into that job, or there's just added stressors, right? And, you know, if you're, and I just feel like corporate is, corporate is corporate, you know, unless you're working for a young company that's like an up and coming tech or a startup or, you know, where you have this young energy and people understand these things. If you're working for a company that's like a hundred years old and you're, you have to climb the political ropes and deal with HR. And I didn't want that. I was like, mm. this is not for me. This is not doing anything for it's my less illness. personalized isn't it it's not yeah like, it just, they it can't work around you I, I didn't feel like it just didn't feel right for me you know mm. I, and so after that I, I was like that's it I'm not doing mm. corporate jobs anymore and that was the last of it you know it was mm. the first and last yeah the healthcare system is hard enough to navigate without having chronic illness diagnoses to boot feeling all at sea and looking for direction advice and deeper understanding 
From a medical specialty glossary to tips on talking to your health insurance providers, download your free copy of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. It's really interesting. I'm wondering as well, I mean, that's an example of the work life balance and, and sort of your relationship with your working life. But right. what about the healthcare system too? Because you're someone who has been involved with the healthcare system or in a relationship with the healthcare system, if you will, since you were at least 13 years old. Right. And I'm wondering, you know, given your experience, did you ever have things happen within the healthcare system that made you aware either of prejudice or privilege based on the way that you presented um, yeah, going um, in. So I feel like the first five to seven years of my life, when I was trying, when you know my parents and I were trying to find me the right therapist, I initially was like, I need, I need a doctor or a therapist, a psychiatrist, and a psychologist. I was like, I want someone who is of South Asian background, right? Yeah. That and you know, it, it sounds crazy that I said that. Well, or maybe now not it at does, all. But, <laughs> I yeah, I don't know. So. I was like. You want someone I mean, who understood your cultural background so that they would understand the stigmas attached right. to your diagnosis, as well as how to treat you within a, a home and culture that yeah, was and very I, specific. So it felt like that's, I was like, okay, well, I need to find someone South Asian. And so that was, I guess, our first obstacle, right? Like, okay, do we found, I felt like there were not enough South Asian doctors that specialized yeah. in OCD or, you know, there were, my first uh, psychiatrist was actually South Asian. Um, she was a much older woman and, you know, it was just, it just, I didn't, I, I just feel like it, I wasn't, I wasn't ex- getting the right vibe or energy. If you see what I'm saying, like, I feel like finding a therapist and a psychiatrist that really understand you, um, it's kind of like speed dating or, or, you know, <laughs> yeah. or like matchmaking, right? You have you to know, be able to say no. Sorry? You have to be able to say no to certain people, don't you? Like, and as you said, yeah. you're saying, like, they, they're people who are part of your team. So, like, they need to be in on yeah. who you are. Like, they need to be, they are part of, like, and I can say this for, for myself, and I'm sure many of your listeners that are, are tuning in, like, you know, your doctors and your therapists, especially if you're dealing with a chronic illness, like, these are your go-to people. Like, they are almost as close as family. Like, these guys are a reason why I'm here today. They are... Uh, you know, they are my, my check-ins, like they are my go-tos. Um, I trust them, right? Like if I have an issue, like I will run to them immediately. You know, if I see them on a weekly or a bi-weekly basis, whatever it is, like these are the people that have my back and have my best interest. And I felt like the first, you know, five to seven years, like I didn't feel that. I felt lost in this healthcare system. I felt just overwhelmed you know, whether it was finding the right therapist that was in network. So that was a huge, like, are they in network or are they out of network? You know, I find like, I mean, the this, fact that you were aware of that as a kid is yeah. like, it's kind of I mean, scary, right? Like, weird. why like, should you I have to like, worry about that? Yeah. I was like, why am I dealing with this? You know, obviously like my parents were handling all of it financially and they, but I was there, like I was aware I was, I was there when they were making the phone calls to doctors. I was, I was looking up doctors. Um, I was trying to figure yeah. out like, okay, well, this doctor has a hundred dollar copay or this doctor is out of network or whatever it is. Right. Mm. You know, and, and finding therapy, you know, and finding help is the, the problem in the healthcare system is that it's so expensive, right. Yeah. You know, you're, it's just not affordable. And, and that just drives me so insane because I, 
you know, healthcare should be, I mean, this is like a whole nother issue. Like this is another topic. Well, I'm going to ask you about it. So we might as well talk about it. I mean, yeah, I'm like the healthcare system does not need, it should not look like, you know, what it is today, yeah. let alone what it was 20 years ago. Right. Like the yeah. fact that my parents had to struggle to pay, you know, a therapist, you know, $150 a week or like, that's a lot of money. And you it's know, not like you caused money. this illness either. It's not like, right. And it, right. It wasn't like I, Hey, like, you know, like take me to the therapist because this is, you know, this is what I want to do. And it's so much right. fun, <laughs> you know, like this yeah. is what I want to do on a Thursday this night. This is my extracurricular activity. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Like I just want to go and chill with my therapist and talk about like these unwanted thoughts I'm having and how I can do ERP. Right. It sounds yeah. so much fun. Yeah. Like, I'd rather be hanging out with my friends and going to the movies like a normal teenager. Yeah. You know? So a part of me had this like major guilt, like mm. a, like, am I putting my parents to shame? Like I have this mental mm. illness and like, what if they, you know, like, what if like people find out, like, what are they going to think about my parents or what are they going to think about me? Right. I was still young and naive and, you know, I was just like trying to understand like the social norms, like no one was talking about it. So part of me was like, okay, this is not okay to talk about. And mm. B, this is expensive. Like this is a financial burden on my parents. And so there are access money. issues that are not just cultural, but they're also about money here. Like yeah. that, that depending on who you are and where you come from and what you're able to provide for your family, right. yeah, that will, I, that will determine your level of care. Exactly. And, and that just like drive, it just makes me so angry because I feel fortunate enough and I feel blessed that my parents were at a place where they could support me and they could, they can find that treatment for me in therapy and I was able to do it. And I still felt guilty, right? Because I knew my parents were, you know, my parents are immigrants from India. You know, they were born and raised in a small town in India. They, they got married and came here like 37 years ago. You know, my father and mom, like they worked their way up and, you know, they have literally done so many different jobs and they, you know, there was a point where my father was working two jobs to support our family. Like, we weren't, you know, we didn't, we weren't made of money, you know, like I, there was no generational wealth. There is no generational wealth. Like my parents like built their house from scratch and they put everything they had into their kids, like to me and my brother. And so a part of me felt so guilty. I was like, and I remember because this therapist was charging like $90, you know, and it was, she was out of network. And this was, I'd have to say like between 18 and like 15 and 18 years ago. And that's a lot of money. That was a lot. Then. Yeah. That now, now that's like, now that's quite affordable as far as a therapist right. is concerned, but it's still not cheap forever. Like not everyone can afford right. 90 bucks. Not everyone can afford a hundred dollars a week to spend on a therapist. And that was then, you know, now it's like, you know, it's so much higher. And so that's the problem, right? That the healthcare system, a like our health insurance, our benefits, like all of that, it just, the whole healthcare system doesn't make any sense. In well, the and it sounds States. like also from a mental health perspective, I mean, we know that mental health is often not covered on certain insurance plans. Like yeah. it's not a given that people are going to get mental health care. Right. So people are often paying out of pocket for it. And like that, I mean, you've already mentioned that mind-body connection, yeah. you know, that like that isn't taken seriously from a holistic point of view of our health. It sounds like that's the thing that's really broken in the system, right? Aside Absolutely. from the access issues and the cultural sensitivity issues. Right. And just the fact that, and a lot of, and what I found over the years from like, you know, going to various therapists or counselors or doctors that honestly, the best ones and the ones that are the most specialized 
and that are the most intelligent or the most able to help you, honestly, a lot of times they end, end up being out of network, right? Because they don't want to deal with the insurance system and they don't have to, right? Mm. There are people that can pay them the out-of-pocket expense or they are that they're able to, and they're just so specialized in this that, you know, for them, it's like better not to deal with health insurance companies. And, you know, and so that is what makes me upset because healthcare should be, is not a privilege, right? Mm. Healthcare should not be a privilege. Healthcare should be a given in this country and every country, right? Like it, Mm. it needs to be like, we, you know, this is, this is not something you need to like work two jobs for, right. To be able to pay for a therapist. And, and I'm not discounting the therapist. Like my therapist is like a godsend, right. You know, they have got done schooling and they've gone to med school and, and grad school and their PhD, and they deserve to get paid what they charge. I'm not saying that in any, in any sense, but the government has to step in. The health insurance companies have to like, this is like a collective issue that this is like a, an issue that's so much bigger. Yeah. Right. Like we just need to find how we can give healthcare to everybody even at an affordable way. Would you say that like these access issues, as well as like the issues of like trying to find someone who understood your cultural background? Yeah. Would you say that some of those concerns about the healthcare system are their own public health crisis? Like they are actually creating a crisis? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's such a huge, oh my God. Like I, I can go on for hours about that, right? Because that is like, it's such a hot topic and it's so relevant. And especially now with like COVID-19 and everything, like I feel like people are finding that, you know, it's not just like people who have a chronic illness or someone that's been dealing with a mental illness for years. Like there's like post-traumatic stress disorder. There's women who get pregnant and have to deal with, you know, OCD coming up after pregnancy or, you know, depression, right? So many women yeah. have to deal with depression, anxiety, pre and postpartum. You know, this is not something that's a small percentage of the country. This is like most of America. Like this is so important. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Would it's you say that? Just... Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. Yeah. It's not just like the few of us that yeah. are dealing with specific mental disorders. Like collectively we are, I would say like a, a, a big percentage of this, of the, of the population here. Yeah. Would you say that there's anything about the healthcare system that does work? I mean, we're hearing a lot of things about it being broken and the reasons why it's broken, but are there any things that are working at least from a mental health perspective? I, um, yeah, I mean, you're allowed to say no. (laughs) Yeah. Well, well, there are a few good things. And so I would definitely like to point out that out, you know, the, the care in which, you know, the therapist that I have found, um, and the doctors that I am working with today, Um, and that I've been with for the past five to 10 years, even though it took me a while to find them and to, and to find the right fit, um, they are so incredibly intelligent and compassionate and understanding. And, you know, and so there are great doctors in our system. It has nothing to do with that. It's just finding those people. Right. And, and I feel like also the healthcare system, you know, I feel like, I guess maybe this is not the healthcare system, but, you know, people are slowly starting to talk about this more, right? Talking about mental illness. So it's becoming a little bit more socially accepted. I don't think we're anywhere near, near where we should be or will be in another five years. Um, but I think people are taking steps in the right direction. Um, yeah. But it sounds um, like it's also, know, so it's not as much just people's responsibility to, to 
destigmatize these conversations, but it's also the healthcare system's responsibility to destigmatize yeah. the conversations too. Yeah. Right. You know, and, uh, and so like, I feel fortunate to be working with the doctors I'm working with today and, and, you know, they're in this healthcare system and I'm so glad to have found them. You know, even McLean is in Boston, like they were such a phenomenal foundation and they are such a phenomenal foundation. You know, the OCD conference, um, the OCD foundation is such a, you know, there are these organizations that are doing such good things. Um, and so I don't want to discount that in any ways. I just feel like there are so many things that we still have to tackle, right? And there's just a long way to go. Um, my sister-in-law is actually a doctor as well. And she, um, she specializes in geriatrics. And, and so I see like all the dedication that she puts in. And I, you know, my best friend's a pharmacist. And, you know, I have friends and family that are in the healthcare system, you know, and I see the type of people they are. And these are amazing people. And so like, I'm not discounting it. I think this is on a bigger level right? You know, somewhere where the government needs to really step in and that the healthcare, you know, the higher ups of the healthcare system really need to understand that this is part of their social responsibility. It really is because if they're not going to do it, like, I honestly don't know what's going to happen to our country. Well, it is that unwritten social contract, isn't it? And yeah. It's like the minute corporate interest gets involved. It's interesting because you're, you're mentioning the government stepping in, but in many ways the government is stepped in, but the problem is that they're stepped in, but they're on the side of the health insurance companies or on the side of the drug companies right. and not as much on the side of the patients, right? Yes, exactly. Stepping into the side where they, where they need to be. Yeah. The correct that, side. Yes, exactly. Yes. The, the moral, uh, the moral, island. right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and my, um, my therapist, my psychiatrist right now, who I've actually been with for over five years, she is a uh, very holistic, you know, she is a yoga instructor. She, um, it's all about the mind-body connection, right? And she believes in less is more with medication. And that is awesome. a new approach that I haven't been, um, I haven't, you know, had to deal with or like haven't been exposed to since I had met her, right? My mm -hmm. entire life, I was like, oh, like I'll just be on meds until this goes away or this is like the only thing that can treat it. But what people don't talk about is a lot of these medications have side effects, and really serious ones and really like you need to be informed about as a patient really right like, and yeah. a part of me that just like you know and I just feel like I know so much more now you know at this age right like when I was 13 I was like okay well like and even my parents right like it was like oh put her on Prozac or put her on this or put her on x or y medication whatever it is whatever medication they were you know I did a lot of trial and errors but it was like, okay, that was like, that was our savior, or that was what would be the answer to getting me better. But it isn't. And it's not just the medication. And honestly, I feel like, you know, there's so much more we can do. And it, it's like the, the mind body, right? There is, you know, and so the, the psychiatrist that I've been working with for the past five years, and she's in New Jersey, and she is such a beautiful human being. And she's like, honestly, like, if I can get, if you can be off the medications and if I can get you off the medications, that's a much better scenario. Oh, that's amazing. I've, I right? don't think I've ever heard about a psychiatrist who wants to get people off meds. Exactly. So that's super and she, she's like, listen, listen, I'm not, I'm not discounting the medication. She's like, if you need it, I understand. Like there are many people who need it and I needed it. Right. There were points in my life. Like I really needed it or I needed certain dosages or whatever it was. But if she sees, like, she's like, if I think, if I think you can do just as well without it, you know, honestly, like I would push you to get off of them and to find a doctor that can say that to you. Like, I was like, you know, like 
can I keep you around forever? Like, can you be in my pocket? Can you live in my pocket? Yeah. Can I just take you around with me? You know, like she is there to not to like prescribe medication and not to like help these pharma company or whatever it is, right? Like she really cares about you as a person. She knows the side effects of these medications. You know, she does functional medicine now, right? She, she went and got her functional medicine degree. Like, so she is holistic. She knows everything, right? Like she has her degree. She knows about the yoga. She knows about the mind body connection, about vitamins, like everything that can, and you know, what they do to your body. And, you know, there have been points where I have, you know, because of the medication, I have had to take other medications because of the side effects. And I'm like, what is going on? Like I'm on this medication and now my A1C is going higher or my, you know, I was a point where a few years ago I was borderline diabetic and it was because of one of the medications I was on, Wow. you know? And so I gained a ton of weight and then I was like, wait, but I'm just taking another medication to cover up another illness. Right. And then I'm gonna have to take another medication. So like, mm. where am I, what hole when, am where I does running it down? Stop? Yeah, where does exactly. it stop? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. You know, it's a vicious so, cycle. Like, it's a vicious cycle. And I feel like less is more and whatever you can get off of, get off of, you know, and what do you need? If you need to be on it, right. You know, like it's, it's so individualized. It's like, what's right for me is not going to be right for you or for somebody else. You know, everyone's illness is different and needs has different needs and, and care and attention. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's also trial and error, right. You know, like when I exercise, like that's, you know, that's something that, you know, helped me so much. And I feel like it's so huge for mental health you know, just getting, releasing those endorphins. Um, So there are so many other ways you can help yourself besides the medication or that can help you with the medication. Absolutely. What about, I mean, you're starting to give some really good tips here. Can you talk to us about your advocacy work too? Because you've mentioned a few organizations that you've been involved with. I'd love to know what the direction of your advocacy work is looking like now. Yeah. um, So honestly, like, like I said, I feel like I'm just at a much better place in my life than I was five years ago, 10 years ago, you know, and definitely 20 years ago, you know, I'm a lot more comfortable in my own skin and I kind of just don't care about what anyone thinks anymore. And getting to that place has taken so long and so much work. Um, But once you're there, it's like, it feels so good. And, um, you know, and it's a journey. And so for any of your listeners out there, like feeling like, oh my God, I feel like I'm in this spot and I just care so much what other people think because that was me. That is still me, right? I feel like with a lot of these illnesses or, you know, with or without, like my personality was like, I was a people pleaser. I wanted to make sure, you know, everyone loved me and everyone cared about me and everyone, you know, I was on everyone's good side. You know, I don't want to make someone feel bad, right? I just would always feel guilty. I was like, well, I don't want them to feel bad, but like, I got to a point where I'm just like, it needs to be me first. If I can't fuel my own tank and I can't take care of myself, I am not going to take care of you. Like I will not be a good person to you. You know, and I remember my, my doctor, my psychiatrist had told me that she's like, it has to be me first. You know, you fuel yourself and then only can you give to others. And that just like stuck with me, right? Like until I feel like I'm at a good place, you know, I'm only going to give 50% 50% to, you know, my, my family or my friends or my business or my job. Like I, I can't give a hundred percent until I feel like I'm full and whole. And so I feel like that's such an important place mm-hmm. to be in everybody's life, you know, whether you're dealing with a chronic illness or not. Um, so, 
Yeah, I feel like that's a huge thing. And and is that something that's you're bringing that into your work now? Yes. And so I I feel like I'm just getting into advocacy. Um, this podcast with you is actually my first full live podcast. Oh wow! About my illness. Um, so I just want to put that out there and I just want to say thank you. Um, oh my gosh, what a pleasure and what an honor. Thank you. Yeah. Like I, this is the first time I'm talking about my illness in such great detail. Like my first, um, I guess like my first experience of like talking about it live was with Nithika with when we did a Q and a on her, uh, on her live chat with Chronicon. Um, and that was like, you know, it was like five or 10 minutes and it was during COVID, right? It was during the past six months. So after that, I was like, wait, I can do this. Like, I have so much to tell. I have so much to share. And I just hope like if I can help even one person with my story, right? Like that's all it takes, right? If I had that one person that told me this story when I was 13, like maybe things would have been very different now. And I would have been at a different place much faster, so I have big plans for the future. Um, you know, I think this is just the beginning for me. And, you know, the fact that I think a lot of it has had to, a lot of it has happened in the past six months, six or seven months. Like once COVID started, I feel like it's given me a lot of time to think and to sit with myself and to understand that there's so much more to life than work and, you know, deadlines and money yeah. and success. You know, that all, that all is great, you know, but your health is, it will always be number one, your health, your family, you know, like the love you have, like there is nothing more important than that. You know, money will come and go, jobs will come and go, you know, you know, gigs will come and go like, you know, a TV show or this or that, whatever, you know, this will all come and go, but your health, like if you can invest in your health and you can invest in finding the right doctors or you know, getting the right care for yourself, whether it's taking a yoga class or signing up for a meditation app, you know, or, you know, going for a massage or just getting your nails done. Right. For me, that's like my go-to, right. When I'm stressed, I'm like, I'm going to go get a manicure. Mm. I just feel so good getting a manicure and pedicure. And that's like my new time. You're not the first person who's actually said mani-pedis are, are their go-to. Oh my God. It just relaxes me on another level. Yeah. Cause you're being cared for literally by yeah. someone else. Like by I someone mean, that's kind of huge. Yeah. And I it's mean, just, yeah. So I just feel like, you know, whether it's, you know, being on this podcast or, you know, working with, you know, Nithika and like, you know, I would love to help her with, you know, her endeavors and just like, you know, I have so many things that I want to do personally. Like there's definitely, you know, I would love to write a book. I have so many thoughts and ideas and I've been, it's been brewing in the back of my head for years. And I feel like it's all about timing, right? Like life is all about timing. And when things are going to fall in place, they will fall in place, right? Like there's only so much you can do and say, you know, there's another story written for us. And I feel like, you know, when the timing is right and I feel like now is the time for me. And I feel like this journey of advocacy, like I would love to talk about my illness and, you know, whether it's through writing a book or writing, you know, maybe we'll start small and write an article, you know, I would like writing a book is a, is a big, um, project and it's something that I have wanted to do for years. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm putting it out there into the universe that I will do it, you know, but you know, whatever it is, whether it's, you know, going to the OCD conference, you know, this year was actually online. Um, I went to it in person two years ago. And so they basically do it at a different destination, a different city in the U S every year, you know, so whether Mm. it's organizations like that, Um, And also just talking more openly about mental health, right? Like 
like starting small, like talking to my friends about it. And, you know, once this episode goes live and once, you know, I start promoting it and all that, like I, you know, that will be like my time to like really put it out there. Yeah. Absolutely. You mentioned already, you know, prioritizing self-care, putting yourself first. Um, But I I wonder if you could talk to us about your top three tips for anyone who suspects they've got something off. Maybe they're also living with a mental illness. Maybe it's OCD specifically, you know, what would you recommend as your, your sort of top three go-tos for people who are living that life? Yeah, I would, number one, I would say help. Don't be ashamed. Like really it, this is, it's not just you. It's definitely not just you. You know, there are millions of people suffering with that specific illness or that specific condition. You know, you are not alone. So seek help. Um, you know, whether that's talking to, I would say, you know, for me, it's, it's like, I, I would always seek professional help, right? You know, because it, you can talk to a friend or a family member initially, which is great. Um, but just like, you know, what I had to deal with people, and this was even within the healthcare system, right? There were people that just weren't, as knowledgeable about this condition that I had. Um, so I just feel like finding professional help and someone who studied it and knows what they're talking about, right? Um, so seek professional help. Go to the doctor, right? Go, to, you know, set up an appointment. You know, if like, if you're at a, a really low place, you know, the good news is it's only gonna get better. You know, you're only gonna go up from here. And that's what I felt like when I was at rock bottom. I was like, okay, well, this is really, really crappy feeling. And I'm like crying for hours and, and I feel so bad, but it's only going to get better, right? It can't get worse if, if I feel so horrible. So just know that you're not alone. Um, definitely seek help. Um, number you know, two is invest in finding the right doctor or the right therapist or the right care, right? So it's like, yes, you're going to seek help, but is it the right person? you know, invest that time, that energy, that money, you know, and it might seem like a lot. Initially, I was like, oh, well, I don't want to spend this much money on, 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 on a therapist or whatever. There is no greater thing you can do for yourself than to take care of you and your health, whether it is mentally, physically, emotionally, like you will be a better person for yourself. You'll be a better person to your friends, your family. And, you know, and hopefully you can also pay back, you know, another, you know, and teach someone else or be a mentor for someone else. So, I would definitely invest the time in finding the right uh, professional and then self-care, right? Like be balanced about life, you know? And I feel like before this, I was always like, I mean, I am a type A person. I'm always like on the go, on the go, on the go. And I'm like running from this, that and answering emails and, you know, checking the text messages from my staff. And, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm not there. I'm still I'm not still there. I, I, it's a work in progress. Um, but I feel like the last seven months during this pandemic, like when things have slowed down a bit, I'm like, this isn't so bad. Like I, things don't have to be at like 150% every day, all day. Like I kind of like things to be a little quiet sometimes, you know, like I never used to, this is actually really weird. I, I'm also as an actress, like I would not watch TV, but I would say pre pandemic. Like I, I, I would love, you know, I would watch movies and stuff like that. But like, I was like, I don't have time for TV. I don't have time to watch these shows. You know, I would, I would always be like working till the, like at the end of the day, or I'd always find something like cleaning my apartment or, you know, I don't know. I'd always find something other than taking care of me. Right. And during this pandemic, when things slowed down initially and like our locations closed, I had a little bit more time, you know, I started watching TV and all these, like, there's just such amazing content out there. First of all, um, I was catching up on all these shows and I was like, 
what was I doing? Like, why was I missing out on all this amazing content and TV? And it like relaxed me, mm. you know? So whether it's watching a TV or a TV show or catching them with a friend, right? You or know, getting that mani-pedi. Or getting a mani-pedi, right? I, like I, that was like my, like, you know, like my go-to for like my self-care, getting a massage or, you know, just dealing, you know, sitting outside and having lunch with a friend, you know, or going for a walk outside and just like, listening to music, taking a dance class. I'm like, I love dancing. I've been dancing since I was five. And like, I started dancing again during, you know, taking dance classes, you know? So it's like this, it doesn't have to be like, I need to take this like amazing vacation or getaway. Like, yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. And that'll be five days, but you need to incorporate self-care every day. So like small things, you know, like whether it's a half hour a day and be like, so I, I would say those three things, you know, seeking help, finding, investing and finding the right treatment and taking care of you in whatever way that looks like. I love that. What about, I mean, these may overlap with some of the things you've mentioned, but like three things that you turn to when you want to light yourself up, when you need to just have a moment of joy, what are three things that you turn to? It could be guilty pleasures. It could be indulgences or comfort activities. Maybe when you are having more of a flare with your OCD, where do you turn? So I will say, um, number one, there are two foods that make me very happy. Um, that is pizza and Mm. ice cream, you know, whether that's gelato or, or, you know, different, different ice creams, you know, I am like the ice cream queen. (laughs) I, you know, and my (laughs) husband, it's so funny because over the years, my husband like knows, like if I'm in a bad mood or like things are flaring up or I'm just having a really rough day, he's like, okay, let's have pizza for pizza at home. You're making me go like, I think I might have to have pizza for dinner now. (laughs) Yeah. Like, or, you know, like we'll order, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll go get, we'll go for some ice cream. Right. Or I'll go get some like my favorite frozen yogurt. Um, so that I would say with like food, that's, those are like my guilty pleasures. Um, and then I would say, I love dancing and I love music. So, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's hard to do it when I have a flare up, right. Because you're just like, I don't want to do anything you know, but then when you put on some music or you, you know, watch a TV show or something like you basically distract yourself. So that really helps me. Um, and just spending time with like my loved ones. So my my parents, my in-laws, my best friends, my, my, my husband, my brother, like my cousins, you know, like I really enjoy spending time with these people. So, you know, maybe it's just like giving my friend a call and being like, I'm having a really crappy day or calling my cousin Mm. or my husband and I were like, okay, we'll go, we'll go out for dinner you know, like getting my mind off of whatever is going on. So, you know, spending time with them, eating the foods I like, you know, and then, you know, working out and like dancing because working out has yeah. been a really, um, something that's helped me a lot over the past. There's that like, mind body connection. There it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's so, it's so clear. It's so it's so real. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I mean, I've had therapists, but I don't know that every therapist would say this to people, especially depending on their triggers, but I've certainly had therapists who said to me, like, maybe try doing a little bit of working out, like, like, you know, do a dance class or do whatever, because it might help you lighten your load a little bit. Sometimes it's a great way to process stress. So depending on your ability level, like allow yourself to do some movement. If yeah. You and you don't have to be an expert at it. Like no one's no. saying like, go run a marathon. I don't think there's as, as much joy in expertise anyway. I think there's more joy yeah. in like finding what feels good. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, whether taking a Zumba class or yeah. going swimming or going for a walk, you know, just trying, um, sorry, just trying and they yeah, can be social like, activities too. You can do them with your friends. I often yeah, go like on going for a picnic. Yeah. You know? 
it's just like, there's so much joy in those small things. And, you know, and for me specifically, I found exercise to be a great reliever of stress. So every time, you know, it takes me a lot to be like, okay, I need to put on my pair of workout, you know, clothes. And like, I have to get like mentally ready, you know, like get my AirPods and get my, get myself like mentally ready to go out on a workout. But like, when I come back, I feel like a million bucks. I'm like, oh my God, I'm ready to tackle the day. You know, and you, and that stress lives in your body. So as soon as you move and you let that negative energy out of your body, like it, you know, it's out. Like you just need to move your body sometimes, you know, and it Mm -hmm. just like, you just feel lighter. So that's helped me a lot. I love that. So what is your ask for listeners today? What can they do to support you in your ongoing work? And also just, you know, the, the mental illness and OCD community in, you know, continuing to be recognized appropriately. Yeah, I I think just be open and have that conversation. You know, if you're struggling, talk to a friend, talk to someone that you think, you know, won't judge you, or even if they do judge you, you know, like talk to someone that you trust, um, seek that advice. Like I, you know, and I feel like the more open we are as individuals, like all of us, like whether we're dealing with an illness or not, like we just all need to be educated about what's going on. We need to be respectful of like, you know, other cultures and other illnesses. And we just need to like learn from each other, you know, like, yes, I've been dealing with OCD, but that doesn't mean I know anything about other mental, like, I don't know everything about other mental illnesses, right? Like every mental illness or every physical illness is so different and we can just learn so much from each other. So I would say like, talk, just talk about things, like just make it so that having a men- so I like, I would love for us to get to a point where we can all just be so open and honest with each other. And that kids that are growing up, you know, in, in this next generation, like they're not scared to talk about like, Oh my God, I have these unwanted thoughts or I'm feeling really sad today. Like is something wrong with me? No, it's okay. You know, like we all feel this at some point or another, like you will get through it. You know, you just, and, and once we talk about it, we normalize it. Right. And I feel like if we're not talking about it, that's why it's like, it's so much bigger in our heads, right? Like the moment we talk about it and we let it out, you're like, okay, that wasn't such a big deal. Like, so now my best friend knows. So now my, yeah. my aunt knows. Okay. Like I can tell more people like, and you just normalize it. It's, it just doesn't become this big secret. Um, so that. that would be my ask, right? Like, you know, talk, talk, you know, whether it's your loved ones, your doctors, you know, try to spread the message and educate everyone about whatever you're going through. And if you don't have an illness, right? Like if if some of your listeners don't have a illness themselves, then just listen, you know, like if you have friends that, you know, are maybe going through something, like ask them, like, are you okay? Like, do you want to talk about something? And like, try to listen and be there without any bias or judgment. Like you may, maybe you don't even need, need to give any support or advice. Like just be there to listen so they can like, so they can feel lighter. Right. You know, so whether it's like listening to one another or talking, I think like like we can just, there's so much we can do. Sharing. Either way, it's sharing. It's being It's all about sharing. Yeah. And where can listeners find you if they want to connect with you? Absolutely. So I, um, well, I'm on Instagram. Um, My handle is, I will spell this out for you because it's a long one. It's my uh, maiden (laughs) last name. We'll also link to it on the webpage for the episode. Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram. It's P and then my maiden last name, Chunznani87. Um, you can also email me, um, which is 
so I, I guess I'll send you all that information. You can email me, yeah. you know, we'll link you to can it. find me on Facebook. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm on most of the social networks. Um, so feel free to email me, DM me, you know, I am totally open to helping you or anyone in their wellness journey. Um, or even just like to talk, right. Um, if someone just wants a friend or someone that, you know, they want to connect with. So yeah, I'm totally open. I, I would be happy to talk to anyone. Um, and like I said before, right, like we're all in, in this together. This is so much bigger than just my condition or your condition or his or her condition. This is like, this is, you know, this is going to go back into like, the more we talk about it, the more hopefully we can raise more money, money. So there can be more research, right? There can be more grants for doctors to fund into finding out a cure for these illnesses, right? So we don't have to be on those medications. So the more we talk about it, the bigger it'll become. And hopefully we can, you know, raise more awareness. I love that. Pooja, it's been such an honor having you on the show. Thank you for being on your first podcast with us. Um, And thanks so much for sharing your story. And I'm just really excited for everyone to um, continue to normalize this conversation in hearing yours um, and to be comforted by the fact that like, you're not alone. Um, You're not alone. That's exactly why we're here. So yeah, we're all, you know, this is like a bigger community and it's, this is something that's so much bigger than just each and every one of us. So true. Pooja. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Lauren. I um, and thank you to all the listeners who are tuning in and listening to this. Um, yeah, just know you're not alone, and you know things do get better. You know, it takes a lot of time, and just you know, um, it's a process and it's a journey. Yeah. So as long as you understand that that things are gonna get better and it, things are gonna take time, but Stay as long as you're course. moving upward, yeah, you're moving in the right direction. That's a win. You know, baby steps. That's what I say. Every day is a is a baby step. I love that. Pooja, thank you so much. Thanks, Lauren. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.